If we haven't met, my name's Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carney E. Free. And uh, so grateful, though, that you came here to worship with us today. And I'm sure you're glad that you came uh, to hear those stories. And so grateful to, to be together, uh, connect with each other. If you're a newcomer here at Carney E. Free, our, our mission statement is building a transformational community by growing in love with Christ and all people. We pray that you really have an opportunity to grow with Christ while you're here today and this week and get connected well with others as well. In whatever way we can help you with that, we're more than happy to do so. Uh, Last week, uh, we journeyed through Hebrews chapter 5 and 7. Thank you. Were you going to attack me there? (laughs) Last week, we journeyed through Hebrews 5 and 7. And it's uh, two chapters in a six-chapter section of the book of Hebrews that's really amongst the most difficult sections in the New Testament to understand without a, a relatively strong understanding of Old Testament background. And what we do here at Carnegie Free, if you're a newcomer, is sometimes we teach on topics that are related to each of our lives at any given time, related to relationships or finances or suffering or parenting, whatever it might be that we go through, work, there's all those different things, the different topics. The Bible speaks to those, so we speak to them. But as well, we like to journey through books of the Bible because we want to understand the whole canon of God's Scripture as it was written. Now, this book of Hebrews, it needs to be noted, would have been quickly understood by first century Jews that the author is writing to, who were steeped in the context. Are there any first century Jews here? Okay, last time I checked, there are not. And so it's not as easy for most of us to understand. It really does require at times a deep dive into some of the Old Testament illustrations and quotations. And last week, as we talked about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which again is noted here in Hebrews 5 through 10, a section that many people skip because of the density of Old Testament references. As we talked about the Old and the New Covenant last year, we talked about the old priests and the one priest that we have now, who is Jesus Christ our Lord, and then our response. Anyone want to remember what our response is to the one priest today? What is it? Trust and obey, I heard from here. I heard it shouted out from the venue, I hope. Trust and obey. Do you remember that? We talked about our response to the one priest for us today is trust and obey. And what did I do at the end of last week's message? I sang a really out-of-note song, out-of-tune song. And, uh, but hopefully you remember that's uh, you know, a kid's song, Trust and Obey. There's no other way for us to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And I, I sang that song hopefully with the purpose of getting that ringing in your ears so you remember this is what God invites us to. In response to all that Christ has done, we trust and obey. I asked my older son, Elijah, how he liked the end of that message in which I broke into song, and he said, Dad, don't do that again. (laughs) That was not good. You know, don't ask if you don't want to know the truth, right? Yeah, I knew that wouldn't be that pleasant for you. But again, hopefully it's a reminder for you that this is, this is what is for us. This is our response. This is our responsibility. We surrender to the living God. We surrender to the loving God. We trust him because he's totally trustworthy. We obey him because he's absolutely 
obey worthy. All of this is related to the fact that we live in this new and greater covenant. So what is a covenant? A covenant is a promise. It's a binding relational promise between two parties, between two people. It's much more than a contract. It's far more than a business contract. It's a binding relationship between at least two people in which they say, I give you my word. It's like an old-fashioned handshake, this promise. We speak of covenants still today in some contexts. For example, if you've been to a wedding ceremony this summer, you've probably heard of this covenant of marriage in which two people looked at each other and a man and woman said, through thick and thin, in sickness and in health, through poverty and wealth, I give myself to you. That's a covenant. Likewise, parents make a covenant to their kids that I am for you, I will protect you, I, I will guide you, I will love you. Okay? We, we all know about covenants that, that, that come and go here on earth between people though, that we love, and that's not really what I'm speaking about today. But even though they frequently come and go here on earth, I, I want you to hear this, this idea of re, a relational promise, a binding promise between God and us, he will never break it. He will never break it. No, no matter whether people would break covenants, he will never break his covenant. Indeed, Psalm 27, for example, says, even if your father and mother were to forsake you, I, the Lord, your good, good father, will never forsake you. I'll never leave you, says our father. So the old covenant, the old promise was written in the Old Testament and it included great promises of God that were conditioned on the obedience of God's people to the law. The law is the first five books of Moses. When you hear the law, that's the first five books of the Bible, starting with the Ten Commandments, but also the rest of the laws in those first five books. It required many priests and many sacrifices for the sins of the people, while the new covenant inaugurates not an age of law, but an age of grace in relating to God. Not based on repeated sacrifices, repeated offerings, but based on one sacrifice by Christ for all time to forgive us and bring us to God. To take care of all of our shame and failures and lead us to the king. Now it's not that the old covenant was bad. It was ritualistic, for sure. But it wasn't bad. The Old Covenant was meant to be like scaffolding. Let, let me share a couple analogies. It was meant to be like scaffolding though, that one would, would build up toward the prize of a great building. You have scaffolding on the outside of a building. Up on the screen you'll see scaffolding on the outside of the Statue of Liberty. And the scaffolding goes all the way up the Statue of Liberty and at its peak you may not even be able to see the statue behind it. But once the Statue of Liberty is completed, all that scaffolding falls away and what you have is the prize. You have the pearl in the center. The scaffolding is no longer needed, correct? The scaffolding bub becomes obsolete. But along the way, it's pointing toward something better that is coming, pointing toward a purpose. Once that purpose is there, the scaffolding around it is obsolete. It's been fulfilled. Think of another example. Again, that's the old covenant scaffolding leading to the new covenant, that prize. Another example would be this file cabinet. You think of our old business storage. You got one of these? Raise your hand if you have one of these. 
Okay, many of us have one of these. These used to be everywhere, right? Everyone used to have at least one or two or three or four of these. But these are, last time I checked, I still have one, but they are becoming obsolete, are they not? Okay, because they've been replaced by something like this. This big old honking, take a look at this big old honking computer. Remember those? Okay, for those under about 35, you may not remember something like that. But that's the way computers used to look. And this is kind of being moved out of the way. It's becoming obsolete. It's being fulfilled, as it were. As Jesus says, I've come to fulfill that which is before. This kind of fulfilled that. Well, you open up, and it used to be the case that um, here you, you had one of those. Everything was on it. And then you developed a, a floppy disk. Remember those? Okay, again, all those under about the age of 40 do not remember floppy disks. But there were these little disks you carry around, and you could store about 500 megabytes if you were lucky. Those quickly became obsolete, such that we looked around the church for one last week. We couldn't find one. Uh, then what, we, what it was replaced by, which I was very excited about, was, was these. Anyone have any of those in your desk drawer anymore? We've thrown all ours away, okay? Led to something bigger and better, these CDRs, and no longer needed. And then those were replaced by, by these. Remember those? Okay, a thumb drive. Maybe you still use some of those, kind of handy. But this is quickly being replaced as well by something that's a little bit more like, like what? What is it? The cloud. All right, where's our cloud machine when we need it, Matt Demerit? Okay, it's, been, it's just this mist, right? But all of that previous storage that had to be in physical things becomes obsolete when it can now be stored in the internet ether. Well, in Hebrews 8, we're going to read that the Old Covenant, again, moves towards this prize that kind of makes other things obsolete. It abolishes the Old Covenant when the New Covenant is here and he fulfills that. Talking about the priests of old, as we talked about last week, uh, our author Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 8, picks up on that theme and then he moves forward. Look with me now in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. You'll see the entire text on the screen, but this will be our text for today. They, the priests, serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, a copy and shadow of the one priest who is to come, who is now ours, Christ Jesus. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now he's moving over to physical objects, from priests to physical objects. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second covenant. Again, a new covenant that replaces the old one. For he finds fault with them, the Hebrews, when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now that's Old Testament language for the people of God. You could just substitute in for that, the people of God. He's going to make a new covenant with the people of God. All those who are grafted in, Jew or Gentile, grafted into Christ, are part of this new covenant promise. 
not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So remember in the old covenant that it was conditioned on the people's obedience. They didn't obey. They didn't obey. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel to come. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, here's that word, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Okay, so you hear the author in this, beginning this section, referring to uh, the tent that Moses built and the tabernacle that Moses built. And you might remember if you're a student of the Old Testament at all, that first there was an altar that Abraham built, which was a, a meeting place with God, and then there was a, a tent, a tabernacle, an ark that Moses built, and then ultimately there was this glorious temple that Solomon built, and it was destroyed, and then it was rebuilt by Nehemiah and Ezra and the others. But all of that was the old home for the people of God to meet with God. And what the new covenant is saying here is that there's a new home. There's a new home for the people of God to meet with God. Now that old home was destroyed. And that's why even today, if you watch the History Channel, you'll notice, or you look at old pictures from National Geographic, you'll, you'll probably see at some point portraits of Orthodox Jews who are crying before the western wall of the temple and are putting their prayers into the western wall of the temple. Have you seen those pictures? Have you seen those? Raise your hand if you've seen those. Okay, why are they crying? Why are they putting their prayers in there? Because the center of their worship, their home for worship, has been destroyed. And so they're longing, they're praying for restoration of it. But the new covenant was promised 600 years before Christ was born. And the promise was that it would be way better than a temple. It would be way better than any building. Sometimes... Old Testament Jews got this. They understood it as it was promised through many, many prophets at different times. And sometimes they didn't. But here in Hebrews chapter 8, we see it quoted from Jeremiah 31. So look up on the screen. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. Put their law on my law in their minds and write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So again, the center was the law and the temple. Now the center is, guess what? God's word written on your heart. God's spirit dwelling within you and me. That we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Something better is here. It means that we can pray, we can worship, we can relate to the Spirit of God in someone else 24-7. It's not dependent on any place any longer. 
not written on stone tablets. It's more and bigger than that. Likewise, Ezekiel 36, 26 says this, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit into you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh in its place that is now pulsating with the spirit of God. Because the spirit of God is now in us, our hearts are now more oriented toward God than they were before we were believers, before we were baptized. But now that that's happened, we have a heart that's pulsating, what with the spirit of God. One more reference, you fast forward a bit to the New Testament and we see the Apostle Paul speaking to this as well. Now of course the Apostle Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, was he not? He was faultless with, relate, with regard to all of the old covenant law. He was spotless with it. He kept all those rituals, all those rites that are spoken of in Leviticus. He followed it to a T. But then he encountered the resurrected Christ. And after he encountered the resurrected Christ, all of those rituals went by the wayside. And he didn't follow them any longer because he experienced Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it transformed the way he worshipped, transformed his life such that he even goes on to say, In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, you now are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So the center being the written laws and all the rules, well now they've kind of been done away with in the sense that, yeah, there's... The moral law we still follow, but we follow it out of the heart because God has changed us from the inside out. And so we follow the moral law, not the civic and ceremonial law, but the moral law still, the Ten Commandments and others. We still follow that, but it's out of the heart because his word has now been written in our hearts and his spirit now lives in us. We have a new heart and we have a new spirit. Isn't this great news? I love this. You let this settle in. The new center of God's activity in the world is not Moses' tabernacle. It's not Solomon's temple. It's you. It's you and me. It's ordinary men and women sitting around us with bad breath and bad hair days, but still dwelt with the spirit of the living God, which makes us pause when we think of some of the things that we say to one another some of the things we think of one another, some of the ways that we can even spite one another. You see, the curtain between us and God has removed such that he now dwells within us, at the center of our being. He's about internals, not about externals. Can I hear you say that? God's about, not about, he's about the heart, which I'm so grateful for because I can do a great job of managing the outside. Anyone else? I I can look the part pretty well. I can act the part pretty well. But the heart, you take off the mask, that veneer of religiosity, you take off that mask, that veneer of having it all together. Ooh, that requires God. 
That requires God coming in. That requires more of the Spirit of God that is able to regenerate us and renew us that is completely a work of Him and not of us that then changes us to become the kinds of generous, humble, gentle, compassionate, loving, Christ-oriented people that we want to be but could not ever become by our own effort. Can I get an amen? This is the work of God for us. He's about internals, not about externals. What we're talking about here is spiritual regeneration. It's rebirth. It's what we celebrate at baptism. You look at verse 11 here. It says, They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Intimate knowledge with me they'll already have, from the least of them to the greatest. See, in the new covenant, we all know him. We're all intimately connected and loved by Christ himself. Some might read this passage to say, well, if we don't teach our neighbor anymore, then what are we doing here on Sunday morning? Let's just pack up shop and go enjoy the Sunday news. What are we doing down in E-Free Kids? That's not what it's saying. It's saying in the new covenant, there will be no need for anyone to think that they can manipulate someone else into the kingdom of God. Because in the new covenant, they all will know Christ personally. You see, it's referring to regeneration, as it's already been doing in this passage, referring to regenerating the heart, which is never a work of any man or woman, but always a work of of God. Renewal, rebirth, is not something that anyone can do for another person. It's a work that God does for us. And so no one can teach that to someone else. We simply proclaim it, and then God works in that person's heart, and that person needs to respond. It's not saying that we don't teach each other. Of course we're going to continue to teach one another because we all need to continue to grow in that which we have begun to experience throughout the rest of our lives. Indeed, I love what Pastor Kent said a couple weeks ago when he was given a next-generation worship service. He said, we need to be a tribe with our kids, teaching them the ways of Christ. Oh, so true. The two parents by themselves can't do it. We need many other people that are speaking into their lives. And that's true for adults too. If I didn't have my life group speaking into my life, I'd be in trouble. We need to have people around us teaching us. But that work of regeneration, that work of renewal, that all belongs to God. That's the work of God himself. Now second, we better move quickly here. New home and then new forgiveness. The the new covenant promises a new home and it also promises new forgiveness. Verse 12 says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. I will remember them no more. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalm Psalm 103 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Really interesting word choice that the psalmist gives there as he's looking forward to the fulfillment in Christ. You know, he could have said as far as the north is from the south. But it's really interesting. Well, when you go north to south around the globe, eventually if you go north, when you reach the north pole, you'll start going south. But if you go east to west, If you go east across the continental U.S. and across the Atlantic and across Europe and Asia, you actually never begin going west, do you? You're always moving east 
It's never ending that you're moving around east. Same thing if you go west. It's never ending. And so what it's saying there is as never ending as east is from the west around the globe, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. Never ending. There's nothing that you could point to today that you wonder, could God forgive me of that? Nothing. His grace is almost scandalous that he is willing to forgive us of anything. You know, it strikes me that old covenant forgiveness is probably the one that we're more familiar with and probably the one that we more naturally practice. Old covenant forgiveness says, I forgive you, kind of. I forgive you, but could you please work a bit harder to be more like me? Anyone else? New covenant forgiveness says, I forgive you completely. With all of your idiosyncrasies, I forgive you. With all of your failures, I love you, I have made you. Old covenant forgiveness is temporary. That was the nature of the repeated sacrifice system. New covenant forgiveness is eternal. It's eternal. Again, how about our kind of forgiveness? Our natural kind of forgiveness tends to be conditional, doesn't it? It tends to come with strings attached. I forgive you, but I have these strings attached to my forgiveness. Christ's forgiveness has no strings. There are no strings attached to it. It is unfathomable and unconditional. Our forgiveness goes like this. We, we forgive, but, but my, oh my, we're going to hold on to that one. That one was bad. That one really got to be a pebble in my shoe, and I'm going to hold on to that one. That's our kind of forgiveness. But new covenant forgiveness, we must understand this, new covenant forgiveness is I forgive your sins, and I remember them no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far I, as, has I forgiven you. It's, I have thrown away the ledger. I keep no record of wrongs, 1 Corinthians 13 says. I keep no record of wrongs, our God says. I mean, you think about the magnitude of this. This is the omniscient God, the one who knows all things, the beginning from the end, and he says, I choose in my love, not to remember that, whatever that is for you. He chooses to forgive and then forget. New home, new forgiveness, and then new confidence. Hebrews 9, 23 and 24, you'll see on the screen, but I'd encourage you to underline this in your Bible. Uh, these final words on Hebrews 9, 24, it says, thus it was necessary this is new confidence, new confidence. Thus it was necessary for the copies, the scaffolding of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, with these rituals. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on your behalf. On your behalf. If you underline your Bible, those would be three good words to underline. Put a star next to it, right in the margin. 
Christ appears before the Father on my behalf. I don't know about you, if I had to stand before Father God in all of his holiness, in all of his perfection, in all of his justice, on my own accord, I would have no confidence. I would be extremely tentative. But if I appear before Father God, not on the basis of my goodness, not on the basis of my intelligence, not on the basis of any of my accomplishments, not on the basis of any good thing that I have done for anyone else, but on the basis of what the perfect Son of God has done for me, then I can appear before God with confidence. We become noticeably bolder. We become noticeably more courageous in life. We become noticeably more confident in life when we realize that the one and only Son of God died for us once for all and now appears before the throne room of God on our behalf saying, you see her? She's mine. You see him? He belongs to me. And I will never leave him. We will never forsake him. Indeed, we will make him our temple. Indeed, we will forgive him as far as the east is from the west. Now move forward in peace, in love, in confidence with the living God who has fulfilled it all for you and me and is with you as you go. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you passed through the heavens on our behalf. You've purified us from the soles of our feet to the top of our head. You have cleansed us of sin, removed all guilt, and eliminated all shame. We are yours, and your spirit now dwells in us. Father, I pray for my friends in here that they would know that through Christ, through the cross, confidence can be theirs, forgiveness can be theirs. A new home, the Holy Spirit now can live in them. This is your great offer to us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you fulfilled all of the rituals, all of the scaffolding of the Old Testament. You are our prize. We desire to dwell in you, to love you, to worship you, to examine the prize more and more, to enjoy you as we go. We love you, Lord. We give ourselves to you. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy to us, which we do not deserve. We thank you for your mercy. In the mighty name of Christ, we pray. Amen.